This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 262, a conversation with Fabian Nisiesa. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is Adam Chapman, your host, and this is episode 262. It's a conversation with Fabian Nisiesa. Uh, this is a, a great episode. It's two hours long, which is, uh, extre- we were extremely lucky to be able to get uh, Fabian on the podcast for that long, uh, talking a, a wide variety of different topics. Um, one thing I want to talk about, or at least mention before we actually jump into the episode, is uh, just like we have in, with our last few interview episodes, we had uh, uh, posters from MarvelMasterworks.com message board. Um, contributing some questions so i just wanted to give a quick shout out some of them i mentioned in the episode some of them i didn't so i want to thank the following uh posters uh the comico um who else we got on here dj way um he's part of that question uh shotzi uh kbanya um let's see muldoon boggins badger 1701 uh and then also uh nathan struck who is a uh, frequent well previous co-host of the show and still a guest from time to time he also submitted some questions as well uh, if you want to email us at comic shenanigans you can do so at comic shenanigans at gmail.com like us on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and post in our hg realms thread as well as well as um the review the conversation episodes are also posted uh on the marvelmasterworks.com forum as well um as partially as a thank you to everyone who contributed some questions for the podcast. So without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Today we're happy to welcome to Comic Shenanigans uh, Fabian Isieza. How are you, Adam? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. So thank you for joining us for the show today. Um, So we actually have um, a fair bit of questions that actually came from the MarvelMasterworks.com forum. Uh, I put an open call to questions. I obviously have a lot of questions of my own uh, to be able to ask you and have uh, this opportunity, but uh, there are a bunch of questions that are going to be coming from them as well, so uh, where, nece- where necessary, I'll try and give them uh, some credit for asking the question or the That's blame. That's depend- to draw questions from. I like that. Yeah. Um, so I guess the f- where I usually like to start, though, is uh, how did you first start reading comics, or when did you first start reading comics? Um, my family came here from Argentina in 1966. Um, my brother, who's three years older than I am, uh, and I recognized the characters uh, in Batman of Batman and Superman from the television shows that had been airing in Argentina. But it, it was um, the television shows at that time in Argentina were actually the 1940s Batman serial oh, wow. uh, being rerun on, Ar- on, on Argentinian television in Spanish. And the 1950s Superman show being run in Spanish. And that's and the George I, I Reeves, very, right? I was very young at the time. I was like four. four uh, so I don't remember it that well. But I do know that we recognize those characters. So we asked my mom and dad if we can get comics. Uh, and we got a couple comics. And, and we didn't have a lot of money when we first came here to this country. But, but my parents were okay with us getting the comics because they always like to... Um, allow us to express ourselves artistically my dad liked to sculpt um and and really enjoyed doing that so he had an art definitely had an artistic side even though he was an engineer um and they also realized that it was helping us learn how to read and write english faster uh because when we came here we we didn't know any english Mm. um and we kept buying comics and then of a kid at my brother's school so I guess it's third grade he was in because I started f- fourth grade he was in because I started first grade here in the school system here. Um, 
that he told them, you don't want to be reading those comics. They suck. You want to be reading these. They're really cool. And he showed them, what do you think? A bunch of Marvel comics, right? Of course, yeah. So this is 66, 67. And we tried a couple. Uh, some comic book called Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> and some other comic book called Fantastic Four. And uh, basically we never went back. We never really looked back after that. Um, we, we started getting sporadic issues of Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, some Captain Americas. I started to really like Avengers. We couldn't get a lot. We only were, we only got a couple comics a month, mm-hmm. but we just devoured the ones we got. We drew from them, and we read them a million times, and we just we didn't treat them like they belonged in Mylar coffins back then. We treated them like, like things that, that were, in essence, they were like wearing a pair of jeans. That's how we treated our comic books, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and that was it. I never looked back. And, and as I got older, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, from the time I was about 10 or 11, I wanted to be a writer. And I always drew, but I kind of knew I wasn't a good enough artist to be a professional artist. I, I always consider myself a good enough artist to show a professional artist what I have in mind, you know? Mm. Uh, and, and, and after college, when I got a chance to get a job at Marvel Comics a, a few years out of college, I took the opportunity to get a staff job and, and went from there. I guess that brings up the next question. How did you land the staff job and what, what uh, um, staff job was it? I, I graduated college in 83 with a communications degree. I wanted to do public relations and advertising because I wanted to write. All, always wanted to write, but I also knew that you don't graduate college and get a job as a professional writer. It didn't happen. I was well aware of that. Um, I realized that when I was younger reading books and looking at the author pictures and all of them looked really old like they had to be at least in their mid 30s <laughs> so so i realized that it's something that took time you, you, you needed to work at it before you had a chance to become a, professional, a writer so i i thought advertising and, and pr i could definitely do and, and employ writing skills to do that um and i but i couldn't get a job in advertising because i didn't know how to professionally type which, in essence, that's all they wanted out of you um, back then. You had to work your way into getting copywriter jobs or things like that. So I got a job in book publishing at Berkeley Publishing. And as with anything in publishing, it's a really incestuous business. And it turns into getting to know people and hearing friends who work at one place or another. So the sister of somebody who played on the publishing softball team oh, wow. uh, was working at Marvel and she needed an assistant. So after two years at Berkeley Publishing, I interviewed at Marvel Comics in uh, 85 for a position in the manufacturing department that was doing uh, press posters for Marvel and Marvel had a, a book licensing deal with Fisher-Price at the time and they were doing a whole lot of Fisher-Price licensed product activity books and coloring books and all this other stuff so that's where i got a job just to get my foot in the door at marvel um and after being there for only a few months an opportunity came up where i was able to switch departments and move over to uh, uh the promotions and advertising department which was an adjunct of direct sales and it was a department that was kind of starting from the ground up and i was going to get to be a part of that um, and, and I became at Marvel's advertising manager in, in 1986 uh, after one year in the promotion department, um, and and never and again never looked back. Just kept working on staff, at, and then it took a couple of years before I sold my first thing. I didn't try to sell any writing for a while. Uh, I really focused on my staff job, um, and, and and so I didn't sell my first writing until '87. And what was that first story? 
first uh, first thing I wrote, uh, first issue, well, I sold a Spider-Man inventory story, but when there was an editorial change, the new editor killed the, the, the story in plot form before, anyone had, before an artist had drawn it. So my first sale was a Spider-Man story, but it never got drawn or published, which was kind of disheartening, obviously, but it also a great learning experience, you know? Did that story um, ever see print in any way? No, the story never saw print. It was never drawn. It, 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 I got a kill fee for it. Ostensibly, when you get a kill fee, that's because they acknowledge that it was purchased, but they're never going to go any further with it. Um, and, and I think once you get it a kill fee, it's really difficult to get it back into a into production cycle because of the accounting issues, at least back then anyway. Um, so no, no, never saw print, never was drawn. Uh, and that's all right. It, 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 again, it was a great learning experience because it made me understand the, the differences between editors and the fact that some like cer- certain things and some don't like certain things. Um, and, and that's just a reality, you know, of the business. Um, of course. And uh, so my first sale that actually got drawn and published in relatively ridiculously speedy time because of how bad the scheduling was, was a new universe title called Cyforce. Oh, yeah. um, my first issue was Cyforce number nine, which was basically an inventory story that got immediately scheduled and published because it was so late. Inventory stories are some, used to be stories that an editor would purchase to have an extra story done and in the drawer in case their regular creative team had problems. Um, but the new universe scheduling was so bad and so behind schedule so quickly that every story was an inventory story <laughs> really, really fast. So I wrote Cyforce number nine and the editor asked me for another story immediately after that. So I wrote Cyforce number 13 and then Jim Shooter, who was editor in chief at the time to, uh, was going to be doing an editorial and creative reshuffling of the line because uh, they were going to be reducing some of those, the amount of titles they had, and Cyforce was going to be one of the surviving titles, and he, he told the new editor that I was going to be the writer of it. Um, so he basically ordered the editor to hire me as the writer on the book. Um, and that was a great, fantastic opportunity, but it could have been the death of me as a writer because shooter was having a lot of problems with editorial and new universe was having a lot of problems. And I could have been, uh, I could have had a really hard time with the main editorial staff if I was considered shooters project, you know, hmm. but shooter got fired like within a month after I got hired on Cyforce. So it ended up just being me learning the ropes along with Howard Mackey, the editor who was also learning the ropes as an editor. So it worked out really, really well for both of us. Interesting. Just for a second, going back to that, the uh, the purchase but killed Spider-Man story, can you tell us what it was about? Uh, yeah, uh, it, it was called, um, I think the title of the story was called The Garbage Man. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's about a, a vigilante that the newspapers call the garbage man because they're, the vigilante's tying, tying low-level hoods up and dumping them and, and leaving them in dumpsters, almost like a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and everyone's trying to get, a, get find out who this person is because the it's the city's in love with this person. They think it, he's not hurting anyone really. It's not you know it's not like the Punisher or anything like that. Um, and it became it, that that was the time when Bernie Getz was this guy a vigilante subway vigilante who shot some kids and he got gained all kinds of notoriety. So I was trying to play a little bit with that. Um, and Peter Parker as Spider Man finds out the garbage man's identity. And it turns out that it's actually a woman, and it's actually a nun, a young woman who's a nun. And he is torn between revealing 
the identity of this person to the newspaper, making a lot of money off of the sale and doing something to someone else that he wishes wouldn't be done to him. But for the same token, he has powers and he has abilities to protect himself that she doesn't have. She was just a regular person. <laughs> so he was he was also really worried about the fact that she was going to get herself killed or, you know, badly hurt at the very least. Um, so, so that was his... That was his conflict for the issue, and every issue back then had to have something that was we called a, sh- a shooter can't must conflict. The <laughs> the, the the main character um, can't do something, but they must do something, and and he applied that across the board. He tried to apply that to every single comic that was done, and sometimes that's a difficult thing to do, but it, it's also a great. It's a great thing to try to always be aware of and have in your story, even to this day, uh, which a lot of people don't do. They simplify their hero's responsibilities to the point where the character has no real conflict because it's so obvious what they have to do, and they go right ahead and do it. Hmm. Um, so, so I made sure that I had my Spider-Man can't must conflict because I thought that that would really help me sell the story. Um, and that was it. The, the, the editor who bought it was Jim Owsley, uh, who you may know as Christopher Priest, the writer. Absolutely. Um, but he, he, he was released from his editorial responsibilities and given a writing contract, um, and, and Jim Salakrup took over as editor, and he didn't like the story. He just didn't think it was the kind of Spider-Man story he wanted to do. It was a little closer to like what Peter, Par- what Peter David was doing in the um, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man book, a little more crime, noir, down-to-earth kind of a story. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's a, a cool concept, at any rate. Yeah, it was fun. It was a good story. I was pretty happy with it, considering it was my first, you know, my first sale. Um, it, it would have been nice to have done it. I don't know if I would have had the experience at the time to do that kind of story justice, you know. And I and I did get to sell a couple inventory stories to 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 finger off later for for Web of Spider Man. So it, it, you know, I, I got to write the character in the book. Uh, can you, can you elaborate on the this is actually from the board so this is from the Comico and he said uh, can you elaborate on the circumstances that led to your following John Byrne on the Avengers was it oh, yeah. was, was it always planned to be a short run yes um, it was always planned to be a short run um, I I would have loved to have written the Avengers monthly it's been my favorite book since I was a kid. Uh, it, it's the one book I have the entire run of from issue number one all the way to you know 502 or whatever the heck it is. Um, I have every issue of the original Avengers run, um, uh, and it's the only book I can really say that about from the Silver Age all the way through to, to you know the end. Um, and, and I would have loved to have done it, but I was doing so much else at the time that I don't think that they ever entertained the idea of me doing it. Uh, Howard Mackey was the editor and he and I were friends and I'd written for him before, but I, I think that he was, he, he, it would have been a little too much to do that too, you know? Um, but, but as it stands, what happened was there were editorial differences between Byrne and, and, and Howard and Mark Grinwald. And it, it happened a lot back then. It happened a lot to Byrne. <laughs> and, uh, and he, I think he did a plot and then wasn't going to script it. He just he, he, he quit. He quit, which is a completely his prerogative, but he quit. So I think there was a plotted issue that hadn't been scripted. So they asked me to script it basically overnight or in two days I had to script the whole issue. 
I think that was 317 maybe or 318. I don't remember the numbers now. Then I had to write the next issue and finish up his storyline without knowing what he had planned or intended. Um, So I I plotted and scripted the next issue, which wrapped up that that, that storyline. And then the problem, the real problem was that the book was scheduled for the bi-weekly schedule that we used to do back then, immediately following that. Oh, God. So so they had not, they, they, they needed a story that they could do. Paul Ryan was fully capable of doing about 34, 36 pages a month. So what was decided was that we would do the Avengers bi-weekly with a shorter lead story and then a, a, like a five-page backup. So I think it was 17-page lead feature story. And that, and I had a story in my back pocket that I'd been wanting to do for a very, very long time, which was the crossing line, which was going to be an Alpha Flight and Avengers thing, and also involved the Soviet super soldiers characters. Um, so, so, so I pitched that to Howard, and and, and he. Just had to do it. When I got a chance to write the Avengers. I barely had time to even think about the fact that I was writing the Avengers, much less the actual work itself. Mm-hmm. It all had to be done so fast that that I didn't I didn't get to savor it. I didn't get to take my time with it. Uh, I didn't get to think about it the way I would have wanted to. Um, so so it, it's a it's a regret actually. So I don't look back on those issues that fondly because I think of it as an opportunity that got away because it, it was my favorite title. Mm. Who, uh, who I guess would have been who? Which Avenger that you haven't written in any way do you most wish you could write? Um, you know, I there's I think out of all out of the '60s characters, there's only one character I have never written in my entire career, and that's Thor. Really? Ever, not once, not in, not in anything. To the best of my recollection, I've not written him in anything. He wasn't in the Avengers uh, Avengers Thunderbolts miniseries. Mm, no, I don't think I wrote him in that. Okay, I think Kurt wrote his appearances in the Avengers, but I don't know that he was in the Thunderbolts issues. I'd have to check back on it. I honestly don't remember now. You know, okay. that's that's a good question. I got to go check, but I don't remember writing him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Fair um, enough. So, so I would I wouldn't mind a shot at writing him, but it's not even a solo character. I would lo- I'd love a shot at writing the Avengers. Period. It's never going to happen at this point now, but but it would be fun to get a chance to do it the way I would have wanted to do it since you know since I was young. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question was uh, how did you get the new Warriors assignment to write the monthly adventures of a team created by Defalco? Well, Tom, Tom and Ron put together the team for an issue, two issues of Thor with the full intention that it was going to get a monthly book, but they neither one of them were committed to drawing or to creating that monthly book. Tom didn't think he'd be the right choice for it. He wanted somebody younger, um, but he left it up to the editor to make that decision, and that editor was Danny Fingeroth, and Danny had just come back on staff when he was given one of the assignments he was given was New Warriors. And Danny is a very careful and conservative guy. He does because he, he didn't want to. He didn't want to lose his job again. He'd been fired once as an editor. He didn't want to lose it again. And I totally understand that. But it made him very hesitant to pull the trigger on anyone, much less someone so inexperienced like me. And now I was on staff, so I was there every single day. The truth of the matter is, is that 
Grunwald, Mark Grunwald and Tom DeFalco basically encouraged that Danny ask me to be one of the five or six people that were going to pitch the book. Um, because back then we'd take pitches from four or five writers and then try to try to use the one, you know, decide on which one we liked the best, and, and that's the, the writer we would hire. And I didn't know any of the other people who were pitching. I just knew that I was given that chance because Tom and, and, and Mark encouraged Danny to do that. And encouraging is a nice way of saying, give this guy a chance to, to pitch at least. <laughs> so, so Danny asked me to pitch, and I did. It was six months before I got offered the book after oh, wow. I handed in my pitch um, because it took him that long to make a decision. I think he tried working with a couple other writers and seeing what he could get from them. He told me at one point, and now you got to take into account, I'd see him every single day because I was on staff, so I'm in the office and he's in the office. And, and I want to write this book the way I want to breathe, you know, the, the way I want to beer at the end of the day, <laughs> I needed to write that book, you know, and, um, and, and at one point, I, we used to have half day Fridays, so the office would close at like one o'clock on Fridays, and, and that was basically an excuse for us to leave early and go to a movie or go to go to party at a bar or something, right, <laughs> so we, on, on Friday, when he told me he was going to make a decision by the end of that week, I went to him on Friday, he hadn't told me anything so i assumed the worst he told me he hadn't made a decision because he had a line on a hot writer from california and he was waiting to find out if this hot writer from california was going to be interested and i had no idea who he was talking about i didn't know any anybody you could consider a quote-unquote hot writer from california at that particular time, except for Frank Miller. <laughs> and I sincerely doubted Frank Miller was going to write New Warriors. <laughs> so I, I just left his office, and that was like Friday at 2 o'clock, and I met a bunch of friends at a bar, <laughs> and I got completely plastered that day because I was so mad. And the next week, it, he offered me the book because that hot writer had turned him down. I'm not going to reveal who that name was, and it's a very respected writer, but at that time, at that point in his career, there's no way you could have considered him a hot writer, nor was he in any way, shape, or form appropriate for the New Warriors. But that's all water under the bridge because Danny offered me the book, and I accepted it, and, and, and we got started. Now, taking into account it took six months for, us to, for me to get that offer, we were still on, in fantastic shape on the schedule because I'm pretty sure – that Mark Bagley had drawn at least the first five issues or six issues of the book before the first one ever even saw print. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, we were in great shape schedule-wise because I was writing my ass off and Mark was drawing his ass off because the two of us were so friggin' excited to get this opportunity that we just ripped into it. Um, and, and, you know, we ate that schedule up pretty quick as Mark started to get other work and I started to get other work, but but at the time, we were, we were both like machines on that book, so... The, the book was really, really tightly plotted and really, really tightly drawn for, for the first first year to two years. Wow. Now, were you involved in the process of getting Mark on the book, or was he chosen by... No, he was chosen. He had won the tryout contest. He had drawn a licensed, a toy-licensed book, and, and uh, everyone felt that he was ready to, to start a monthly book. And he was still a little raw and there was still a little bit of work that had to be done, but everyone kind of saw that, you know, within six months, this guy's really going to 
going to be clicking. And then he really was. Uh, he did a really good job in the first few issues, but really around issue four or five is when he started to take off. Um, and, and and having Larry Malstead ink him on the book instead of Al Williamson, who inked the first two issues. Al Williamson's a legend. He just really wasn't appropriate to Mark's pencils or that book. Mm. Uh, but Larry Malstead was. And, and uh, everything about the book really coalesced and took off with, with issue three when Larry started inking Mark, and Mark got a real feel for the characters. Plus, I started doing more continued stories because my first few issues were all one-and-dones, and I started to do more continued stories, which opened up the book a little bit so there was a little, a little more room to breathe. Mark could draw a little bigger and bolder and uh, maybe four panels on a page instead of five or six panels on a page, that kind of thing. Of the original cast of New Warriors, who was your favorite kind of character to write back then? Um, I honestly really enjoyed all of them, but I mean, my favorite character to write for the team was Speedball, just because he was the one who kind of pointed out kind of the absurdity of everything and had fun, but he also had a ca- I, I was a character I was able to really develop and add more depth to, and, and um, but but there was no real favorites. I really enjoyed them all. I, I really did. I liked, I, I liked working on that book tremendously. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a great learning experience. I I do think it, a lot of it holds up really well to this day. So I'm I'm very proud of that that run on that book. I guess is it, is it easy to say that's probably one of your favorite works that you've done? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of my own work, so I'm, I'm <laughs> self critic. But but I'd have to say that New Warriors and Cable Deadpool are probably the two books that that the two mainstream superhero books that most reflect me. You know me as I see comics, um, and 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 I think that I'll 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 live with that. I'm pretty comfortable with those two books being being that example of my career, um, much more so than the X books were, um, and and certainly a, a good chunk of Thunderbolts probably stands up there for me as well too. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a question that came from the boards as well. Um, how did NFL Super Pro come about? NFL Super Pro is the, is the albatross around around that hovers over me, the anchor around my neck, and none of it's my fault. Um, NFL Super Pro was a licensed deal that was in development between Marvel and the NFL. They, I knew little about it. I'd heard that Marvel was talking to the NFL. I was still on staff at the time. I was an editor at that point, and... I knew that they were talking to the NFL. I knew there had been several meetings trying to develop a property that the two could jointly promote. It was a good idea for Marvel, and it was a good idea for the NFL. The NFL wanted to reach out to more young people, and at that point, at that time, they wanted to create some more intellectual properties around the concept of the NFL as opposed to the teams or the athletes. Um, Tom DeFalco had jumped in with Bob Budiansky, who was the editor, and they'd been developing a bunch of stuff. I think that they had talked to a couple other people about it, writers, or or, um, I'm not sure who, but nothing was coming together cleanly. Um, They had bits and pieces, but they weren't able to put the whole thing together. So Bob Budiansky, who was an editor and he was my friend, asked me if I could help him, and and the the NFL was aware that that Marvel was putting one of its top-selling writers at the time on the project, so it schmoozed the NFL and it made them feel good about it. And, and I basically took everything they had and tried to basic, to try to keep what was working better and get rid of what wasn't and, and coalesce it into something 
and my goal was just to write the one shot for them, and that was going to be it. I was just going to write that one shot, get the get the get the ground floor established, and then move on from there. Um, but two things happened. Number one, the one shot sold really, really well, <laughs> and number two, the editor asked me if I could do just the first four issues, only the first four issues, please. Please, I might even be able to get Super Bowl tickets out of it for you. So I said, fine, I'll do the first four issues. And it, it was never a passion project, obviously. It was it, it was really a job, and it was a job being done as a favor for, for, for a friend. Um, and it ended up, like, just hanging around my neck like a lead weight forevermore. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, not, it's not particularly work I thought that was good. It's not a concept that I thought was particularly good. I don't think Jose Delbo was the right artist for it. We could go on forever. But at, at the end of the day, I, I did what I said I would do. I helped them out. I, I put it together. And quite frankly, the one shot and the four issues sold pretty well. So it also amounted to uh, an unfortunately larger royalty check than I deserved. <laughs> So you're saying you don't ever want to write the character again? Yeah, I'll pass. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, speaking, I guess, with uh, obviously you're, you're well known for your association with the X-Books in the 90s. How did, how did you end up becoming involved with the New Mutants? Um, Rob, Rob was going to be taking over as plotter as well as penciler. Um, it, it, it was coming to a head that the, the, the tension and the differences between him and Louis Simonson were, were really coming to, to a head and the editor had to make a decision am I going to stick with the writer who's been working on the book for four years or whatever it was at that point or five years um, or am I going to go with this, this hot young Turk who has all these ideas and a lot of enthusiasm um, but you know, doesn't know how to write a comic because he's never really written one before. Um, and and Bob Harris decided to go with Rob, and and Rob wanted me to script because Rob had known me uh, from the convention circuit. Rob Rob was friendly with Ron Lim, and when Ron and I were doing Cyforce, Rob was like 18 years old, and he really enjoyed what Ron and I were doing on Cyforce. So he asked Ron if he could call me. So Rob Liefeld called me. Before he was even drawing Hawk and Dove, I remember us talking at length about stuff and comics. And you know, he's like ten years younger than me, but he was he was just you know super enthusiastic about comics and about Marvel, about superheroes. He was like an encyclopedia. He knew everything inside and out. Um, and 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 he told me he's going to draw this Hawk and Dove book for DC. Check it out because he's going to be at Marvel at one day. One day he's going to be at Marvel, and, and we're going to work on something together. And I was like, oh, sure, fantastic, great kid, and, you know, and that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> all right, kid, I can't wait. And, and and but he did it. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Kudos to him. And he wanted me to script it, and, and we talked about it. And I said, yeah, it sounds like a really fun assignment. It really does. But we, I knew the book was going to sell better. I knew he had a lot of really fun ideas for it. I didn't know if he could plot a book from beginning to end. I didn't know if he could pace it. I didn't know if he could tell continued stories, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I figured I could script it, and if there were any deficiencies in the plotting, my I could try to script my way around it. And that was it. That's how we started out. And and we started out with 98, knowing that we were going to cancel it with issue 100 because we convinced the powers that be that we were going to that it wasn't going to be the same New Mutants anymore. So it made no sense calling it the New Mutants. 
and we Rob wanted an X in the title because he thought it was going to help it sell better, and he was 100% right about that, too. So we relaunched X-Force, and it sold 3.6 million copies for the first issue, but that's what everybody harps on. They, they don't remember that the second issue sold 1.8 million copies, oh, wow. and the third issue sold, like, 1.2 million copies. So this thing was, like, this thing was everywhere, you know? Um, and and it, was, it was a really exciting time, but... The big butt, the gorilla, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is that I didn't think they were great comics at the time, and it was it was becoming a frustrating work experience because I, I, I didn't think that we were putting out as good a book as we should be putting out, um, and 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 that was that became obvious only after the realization that all the image stuff was starting to come together. You know that that they they were working on other stuff at the same time, and that's difficult to do. You know, it's difficult to put a hundred percent of your energy into two or three projects at a time. You know, um, so so it, it was the best of times, and in some ways, it was the worst of times. Mm-hmm. What was the creation process of Deadpool like? Um, Rob had multiple characters he was introducing in his very first issue as Plotter, and and. You know, one was Gideon, one was Domino, and one was Deadpool. Um, Rob Rob wanted Deadpool to be, you know, a, a super strong, super fast mercenary who had some history with Cable and had come out of the Weapon X program. So there may or may not be some history with Wolverine there. Um, and and that was it. In a lot of ways. Deadpool was a throwaway for that issue and that he was going to pop up, he was going to fight, he was going to be defeated, and that was it. You know, Rob fully intended to bring him back again because he loved the design and he loved the name. And, and, and it was a great combination of two of Rob's great loves in that regard, visually Spider-Man's mask and costume, which Rob loved, and the concept of a character like Deathstroke the Terminator from DC. And when I got the pages, I saw that immediately. I just realized it immediately because I knew Rob and I knew the things he liked. And I called him up and I said, I said, let's talk about this Deadpool guy because we've talked about Gideon and we've talked about Domino. But let's talk about Deadpool because I'm seeing him here. And, you know, basically you just love Marv Wolfman and George Perez's Deathstroke so much that you had to put Spider-Man's costume on him, and he started laughing. And he said, "He said, yeah, 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 no, yeah, I, I love Deathstroke. Terminator's great, but but that, you know, he's he shouldn't be like he shouldn't be Terminator. I just love the visual idea of a character that has swords and guns and all that stuff. So I said, fine, then I'm I'm gonna make his personality very different because the story already had a lot of serious characters in it. So I wanted a character that wasn't gonna be a serious, that was a twist on what you expect out of your gun-toting mercenary. Um, and, and and I was gonna give him the first, the, I was gonna give him the secret identity of Wade Wilson, and that was completely an in-joke between me and Rob. Nobody knew about that for 10, 15 years. That the reason I called him Wade Wilson is because I was making fun of Slade Wilson or having fun with Slade Wilson, which was the Deathstroke, the Terminator's real name at DC. But that was never intended to be the perception that we were copying Deathstroke, the Terminator. That was just me and Rob having a sly joke between us. That the reason the reason they remained a sly joke is because it wasn't pertinent to the actual development of the character from that point forward. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and. and the, the reader response 
back then we used to get regular mail, and X-Force New Mutants was getting stacks of mail. And when I say stacks, I mean look at a desk and picture uh, about uh, two foot tall piles of letters you know a, a few hundred letters were coming in at a time for each issue they really skyrocketed when rob started um plotting and penciling it himself and more than half of those letters were mentioning how much they liked that deadpool character how funny he was or how how, how they want to see him come back and you know the, the rob's <laughs> none of us need need you know need buildings to drop on our heads to realize something um and so we brought him back and the more we brought him back the little by little the more we tried to flesh him out and by the time rob had already left for image we were already in discussion for a deadpool miniseries and i had already done so much developing of the character's personality and and some of his powers and abilities I'm the one who gave him cancer. I'm the one who gave him the, the, the scarred face and body. I'm the one who had made a lot of those creative decisions for the character. So, that, uh, you know, I asked if I could write a miniseries with him, and, and we decided to do it because the character's popularity had been growing and growing. So I wrote the first miniseries um, that, that uh, Joe Madrera did the artwork on it, uh, and Circle Chase series came out, and it sold, sold really well. It sold, you know, like 350 50,000 copies per issue, which wasn't X-Men numbers, but it was still really good. And um, and then I started to plan the second limited series. And a funny thing happened on the way to the second limited series. Um, I handed in a full four-issue outline, and I was fired off the job because the project was deemed as being too serious and too, too much of a downer because the story was about Deadpool finding out his cancer comes back. So all this crap he's gone through has been for nothing because the cancer came back and we were going to use that as the way to get into his past and what happened to him and how he got transformed and all of this crap so it was it was it wasn't necessarily a downer but it certainly was going to be darker and 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 they didn't want to do that so i had a huge problem with my own editors so on the one hand i'm working on a monthly basis with this these editors on two or three titles and on the other hand i want to tear their heads off because they're telling me that I know exactly what's best for this character and they're telling me that, that they don't want to do it because they don't think it's best for the character, you know? Mm. And that's the miniseries that Mark Wade wrote that had Deadpool having a romance with Siren, which if you've ever noticed everything I've pretty much ever written with Deadpool, I've mostly ignored that because I thought it was a really, really stupid idea and I still do to this day. <laughs> What was it like to come back to the character for Cable and Deadpool then? Um, fantastic, ironic, uh, sweet vengeance in a way. Um, I think Joe Kelly's first two years on the book were great. I hadn't really read them until until later, but then I read them and I really enjoyed what he did. I, I think it's a difficult character to do right, and not a lot of people do him 100% right. Some people maybe seventy, some people maybe eighty, uh, some people maybe forty. Um, and so, so what happened is that they, the, for a variety of reasons, they did that Agent X and Soldier X thing with both characters, and neither one of them s- s- worked. Neither one of them really clicked or took off. Even though Gail Simone did a lot of really good work with her Agent X series, it wasn't Deadpool, and the fans didn't react to it positively. The ones reading it enjoyed it, which you should, because Gale's stuff is good, but it still wasn't Deadpool, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so they decided to... They had had two books that were moderately successful in Cable and in Deadpool, but neither one of them were ever lighting the sales world on fire. So they decided, is it possible to have a book with the two of them in it together? 
And at the meeting, they looked at each other and they said, who do we know who understands these characters? And I hadn't written for Marvel in six months at that point. It's the longest stretch I'd gone without writing for Marvel outside of my two years at Acclaim Comics. It's the longest stretch since 1987, I think. <laughs> six wow. months without writing something for them, you know? And and they called me up, and, and somebody at the meeting said, Fabian, Fabian knows these characters. He wrote Cable and X-Force, and he created Deadpool. So they said, um, they said, okay, let's give them a call. And they called me up and they asked me, do you think these two characters can be in a book together? And not having written for them for six months, I said, of course they can. No problem. Without <laughs> a single clue what I was going to do. Um, so, so then I just started thinking about it and started to figure out how a buddy book would work. I reread a, a, a large chunk of my Power Man and Iron Fist run that I had. Um, Joe Duffy, who had written that book for several years, kind of really showed me the way to, to, to figure out how to juggle that in terms of giving each character a fair amount of screen time and a fair amount of balance to their storylines. Um, and, and, and I started writing it. And the book never took off sales-wise, but it was always, always this ridiculously consistent, steady seller. And, and I could tell from the mail and the increase in, in social media that the response to the Deadpool character was growing and getting stronger. And I honestly knew the character was ready to take off the second I got fired off the book and they canceled Cable Deadpool. I knew that character was ready to take off. All it needed was for Marvel to give it a little bit more attention, number one, and for social media to expand because you are we are talking about like 2005 to 2008 think of the difference between what social media does today versus what it did back then you know and, and all it required was for there to be youtube videos of the character and for there to be things like twitter and for there to be things like tumblr and then all of a sudden the character started to explode and it's not even a matter although this comic is selling tremendously better now than it did back then it, it's the character is not known as much by people reading the comic right now as it is by people who are aware of him through his social media presence, you know? Um, because if you look at some of those YouTube videos from conventions with cosplayers dancing and stuff like that, you're looking at things that get millions of hits, millions of impressions. And the comic book is selling 50,000 copies or 60,000 copies. So do the math, you know? Um, and I kind of saw that that was going to happen, and I was so thrilled that it was going to happen without me being a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> With Cable Deadpool, I mean, well, first of all, I have a bunch of questions on that specific book, but um, what led you to, I mean, one of the coolest moments from the, I guess, first year of the book was Cable taking on Silver Surfer. What inspired you to do that? I I wanted to do, I'd wanted to do, Cable, Cable deciding to save the world, and I knew that I couldn't do it with him being fully powered because then it would have it would have required way too much attention from the Marvel Universe, and I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to get too much attention from the Marvel Universe because as a writer and as a book we were kind of very neatly kept in a corner. They 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 didn't mind us as long as we didn't act up, you know. As long as as long as they could ignore us, they didn't mind us. Is what it amounted to. Mm -hmm. So if if I had Cable try to take over the world, 
the way he sh- would have made that decision as a character because enough was enough and he knew right and he knew how to do it right. If he had his full powers, he wouldn't be able to do that because it would have expanded too greatly. So I needed to tell a story where he starts the process of taking over the world for our own sakes, for all the right benevolent reasons, and have him lose his powers as a result, as a consequence. The price he pays for that hubris is to lose his powers. That way I knew that I could steal aspects of the Marvel Universe, but it was only going to be for about four, five, six issues. So I'd get away with it, you know? And and in essence, I, I basically boiled down what I saw as three years or four years worth of a story arc into six issues and tore him down only to get now start to build him back up again, you know? Um, but 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 the, the, the idea of Providence and the idea of, of Cable having his own country and the idea of him starting to do everything right and it was stuff I'd wanted to do with the character all along. You know, I just could never do it in the context of his presence in X Force, and, and I never, I never wrote his monthly book long enough because I, I left it so early on in the run that that I never got a chance to do any of that kind of stuff with him the way I would have wanted to, and if if I'd been writing his monthly book, and, and quite frankly, I'm glad I didn't because I thought it worked off better. I, it all worked better playing off of Deadpool than it would have playing off of any any of those other groupings of characters. Now the run of Cable Deadpool, reading reading it uh, again now, it feels like there were definitely, I guess, moments where um, it felt like you the, there might have been like was was editorial kind of telling you when to become involved in, I guess, the larger Marvel universe because you no, said that you no, were kind of in a corner. Honest, that's a, that's a misconception a lot of people might have. What what tends to happen is that if you're a lower selling book and you get a chance to cross over with a major event you jump at that chance because you know that it's going to spike your sales up maybe 10% for that run that 10% may be exactly what you need at the end of the publishing year for the accountants to justify why it's okay not to kill your book you know what I mean mm. so so if I bump up 10 or 20,000 or 10,000 copies let's say for, for that that one month and I do it for three months that's 30,000 extra copies that ends up being an additional extra issues worth of sales the profits that they would have made off of that you know help offset the decision to to whether to cancel the book or not so I never said no to the chance to cross over with a larger storyline because I always felt that it was to the benefit of my book because we were on six issue renewal cycles every six months we thought we might be canceled so I, I structured the, sto- the storylines to fit into into five or six issue trade paperbacks and I tried to structure the storyline so that at any moment it could be the last storyline and I worked on the book for four years that way because we always had the sword hanging over our heads we always thought we could be canceled at any minute you know but they let us keep going and sometimes they renewed us and we were surprised they renewed us but they let us keep going because we weren't really hurting anyone and there was some fun stuff happening there you know how did it feel to I guess lose access to cable right near the end um fury disgust disappointed disrespected (laughs) um you name it but then something interesting happened I turned it around and looked at it a different way. I thought it was the perfect practical joke to play on that book 
So, so I took it as a practical joke that was being played on the book, and it had a, and I had to have fun with it. So that's why we did the whole Daredevil, uh, Deadpool team up for the last year of the book because I was trying to have fun with the idea that you took the lead character out of a book whose name was still in the logo. <laughs> you know? So, so I had I tried to have fun with it is what it amounted to. But I wasn't very happy because I don't think that that was a very fair thing to do. I don't think it was something that was very well coordinated at the time. And it, I was unhappy about it for a while, but I tried not to let it affect my writing of the book itself. Gotcha. Uh, to, go, um, we, to go back, actually, because I, I took a few divergences to get to this point, but to go back to... Um, to the kind of the, when you took over New, New Mutants and the Next Force, what was it like working with Rob Liefeld on those books? You said it was maybe not the best of comics, but what was just the experience of working together on that book? Oh, well, it was it was good and bad. There there was a lot of good stuff there. The the good is that 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 Rob, you know, I mentioned it before. Rob's enthusiasm is palpable and it's real, and that's fun to work with someone that is so enthusiastic about the work and, and it's fun to work with someone that has so many ideas uh, on the other hand it's hard to work with someone that has so many ideas that it's hard to sculpt them and it's hard to control them and, and, and it's hard to hone them and it, it has so many ideas that stories bounce around a little too much and you lose focus on certain threads of your storyline that need to be maintained um, so, so in those regards it's hard it, it, it was. It got harder to work with Rob during our run on X Force because, understandably, and tell understand that this is all being spoken twenty years in hindsight. Okay, understandably, he was focusing at the same time on using the momentum he was gaining from working on X Force to develop his own company, and that that's a big big thing. And, I, and, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of responsibility and a lot of attention. And like I said, it's difficult to give 100% of your effort to two different things that each require 110%. <laughs> Writing and drawing a comic requires 110% effort. Starting a company requires 110% effort. And, and that's more than a human being can really give. So you had Rob doing layouts and other people doing finished pencils and other people doing finished inks. It, 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 you know, you could tell the pages that weren't 100% his. And that, that became a little frustrating, you know? And, and understandably, on my part, it was frustrating. But again, all of this is done with the understanding of what he was doing and why he was doing it and, 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 and respecting that and applauding what they did because they screwed us over. The guys who were working on the monthly books, they screwed us over. But look at it in hindsight of 20 years later, look what they created. They created a, a really big, really important comic book company, very important to the industry, you know? So take it with a grain of salt that a bunch of guys working on X titles were a little miffed because they weren't getting, you know, finished art or their scheduling got really screwed up. You know, take all of that with a grain of salt because it, it, it's kind of small beans in, in the scheme of things, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, how did you come to start writing for the main X? Well, not the main, I guess one of the core X-Men books. Uh, well, well, when Jim and, and when Jim was leaving... Um, they, it, I, you know what? I don't think Bob ever even officially offered me the book. I think he just, I had to draw two, I had to write two issues because the schedule was so screwed up. 
he was going to have Andy Kuber coming on board as artist, but Andy wasn't ready yet. So that, those are the two issues I did with Art T. Bear. Um, and, and in essence, I was the writer of the book because we had to get everything ready in time for a crossover. Remember I told you how Byrne quit a month and a half before the yep. bi-weeklies were going to start? Well, <laughs> the image guys left about a month and a half or two months before there was already a scheduled crossover in the publishing budget. And it was going to be X crossover for that year, that's that quarter or whatever it was, that, that turned into the Executioner's song. But at the time that, that Jim and Rob were leaving the books and Wills were leaving the books, there was no Executioner's song. There was nothing. There was a hole in the publishing schedule. So Scott and I, who were the ones that stayed behind, who left, who were left to do the work, had to put something together. So I, I put Executioner's song together. That was my outline. That was my, my original crossover. I put the whole thing together so that it would encompass the four titles, the two X titles, X, X-Force and um, X-Factor. And, and I basically assigned, I basically broke the entire story down, and I basically broke down each individual issue of each individual title and what was going to have to happen, and we used that outline to jump in as quickly as we could because none of us had a lot of time to do this. So the Executioner song was put together pretty darn quickly during an X-Summit, um, which took place just a few weeks after those guys had left the books. Wow. Yeah. That sounds so, stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah, it was. It, it was. It was exciting and fun, but it was also really, really stressful and challenging too. No doubt about it. You know? Because look, I mean... Claremont, Claremont had left the X-Books in favor of, of Jim and Wills, and then less than a year later, Jim and Wills are leaving the X-Books, you know? And Rob, uh, Louise had left New Mutants for Rob's Rob's take on it, and a year later, Rob is leaving X-Force. So uh, there was a lot of fans that were really kind of half and half about the whole thing. There was a lot of loyalists who were really angry that... that for one year, their traditional comic had been disrupted. There were a lot of new readers. Believe me, there were a lot of new readers who had come on just for these new guys who were doing the book, and now these new guys are leaving, so what do they got, you know? So we were kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. We really were caught between a rock and a hard place. We had the, we had the prime opportunity to piss off each of the two segments of our readership, <laughs> you know, the old timers and the newbies, we could have pissed both of them off. And the truth is in the sales, honestly, because what ended up happening is that we appeased enough of both factions that the book continued to sell at a higher pace than it had just a, a couple of years previous. Now, so that was your, I guess, like, so that's breaking down a crossover and, and, and putting it all together. What, I mean, obviously it was fun, but I guess pretty hectic just to get it all done. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's interesting. If you look back on the Executioner song, each of the artists all drew their issues that, that for that whole run, right? I, you know, um, I, I think Stroman was on X-Factor and Capullo was on X-Force and Kubert was on X-Men. Um, and, and I think who was on Uncanny? Was, was it, it Peterson? Brandon Peterson, or was it? I don't remember. I don't remember who was on Kenny. I don't think it was Jr. at that point. Um, but but everybody drew their issues, and, and everybody got their work done, even though it was really really tight. Because 
all these artists were coming on board these books and they were very enthusiastic at the opportunity to be drawing the number one through five selling titles in the industry you know uh, all of those books were top 10 books at that time so these artists also were getting a chance to work on on top selling high royalty high attention books uh, a question from the boards uh, that was coming from uh, Shotzi uh, was: Were you always intending on making Cable Scott's son, or were you no. ever, or were you ever? No. Sorry, go ahead. That was never Rob's intention at all. Um, that that's not at all was Rob's intention. I think that was something that Jim Lee and Will Sportasio pitched to Bob, and Bob liked it, and it was kind of done behind Rob's back, and he wasn't happy about it, but he went along with it. And then all of those guys left with with just enough seeds planted that we were kind of stuck with that direction, but not enough detail planted that we really had a clue what 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 they were thinking or what to do with it, you know. But no, Cable was never intended to be Scott Summers' son at all. Now, when when you were plotting out uh, Executioner's Song, and obviously you were kind of stuck with that plan, did you ever toy with just making Strife the son, or by then was it pretty set that it was going to be Cable? Yeah, no, I, I, I was fully... I was fully, I approached it fully at that time from the standpoint that Strife was Scott Summer's son and Cable was a clone of Strife. And Bob accepted that with the caveat that he wanted to be able to change his mind once he thought about it a little more. Because it, it was okay for the characters to think that for a little while, you know? So we were, we, were, we were able to do that. And after just a couple months, Bob said, you know what? I, I'm a little queasy about making Cable, who's become this big popular character, a clone. Because I think that's going to end up diminishing him forever and hanging like a little bit of a weight on him forever. And I didn't disagree. I didn't disagree at all. I said, no problem. We can flip it. We can flip it so that he finds out that he's the real son and Strife, who thought he was the real son, is the clone. There's a lot of tragedy there. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of pathos. That'll be really interesting to do. So that was no problem flipping it around the other way. Another question from the boards. What were some of your favorite stories and arcs from your X-Men run? Um, from my X-Men run? Uh, I was pretty happy with the Executioner song. Uh, quite a, quite happy with that. I was a little bit happy with X Men Twenty Five, uh, the Fatal Attractions crossover, when Magneto rips Wolverine's skeleton. I was a little bit happy with the wedding issue. Um, Only a little bit. Yeah, because you got a, a lot of my scripts were rewritten quite a bit. Bob oh. rewrote a lot of stuff, and and oftentimes when he rewrote it, he did not. He did not rewrite it to to take into account the overall flow of the story or the overall uh, ten um, the overall tenor of the story, the mood of the story. He'd rewrite captions because he wasn't happy with a caption, or he'd rewrite dialogue on a page because he didn't like the dialogue on the page. But some of that is intended purposefully to be a bit of an ebb and flow. So. The rewrites he did on the X-Men wedding issue always really disappointed me because that issue had a much stronger trajectory of melancholy sadness leading to happiness. And he, he diminished the melancholy sadness so much in the opening that, that it loses the flow of that narrative. It, lo it lost Xavier's narrative flow as a result. 
So I wasn't I wasn't 100%. I wasn't happy with it because I thought that the original script was stronger than the published work. Mm. Um, so, you know, and that, that kind of stuff happened all the time in those books back then, So which is, you know, it was that catch-22. I'm writing the number one selling book in the industry and, and, and getting paid very well to do it, and I got to take into account the, the, the future college education of my unborn children versus a monthly adventure in whether I'm going to like what I read or not. <laughs> um, and, and, and I did it as long as I could do it until I couldn't do it anymore, and that's when I quit. Okay. Um, a question actually from our uh, um, um, one of the co-hosts of the show who does a lot of the episodes. His name is Nathan Strzok. He was interested in hearing what your early plans were for Gambit when you were writing X-Men because he really liked the take you were giving LeBeau and uh, his history with Sabretooth. So I just wanted to elaborate on that. Um, the, I was really riffing on Gambit off of what, what Howard Mackey had, had started to do with the introduction of the Thieves Guild and all of that. I, I, I honestly always found Gambit far more interesting a character when you dealt with his New Orleans roots and, his, and the guilds than I did with him as an X-Man and a mutant. I, I thought that Gambit's... The, 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 I look at the DNA of a character, and to me the DNA of Gambit is not in him being a mutant and an X-Men. The DNA of Gambit is him being the the adopted son of a clan that is a group of thieves and has a rivalry with a group of assassins. That's the character's DNA because that's what he grew up in. And I always found that more interesting. So any chance I got to play with stories that dealt with Gambit's past in comparison to his present, that interested me. So I just did the Sabretooth stuff because we had Sabretooth at the mansion. We had him trying to play a Hannibal Lecter game of manipulating people and getting people pissed off. So it made a lot of sense to do that with Gambit. Um, I don't even remember the details of how we led to that story. I, I do remember that story was pretty well received, and I, and, and I was pretty happy with it too. But to me, all of that was just a precursor to the chance to write him in his monthly book, which for me was far more of an enjoyable way to write the character than it was as part of the X-Men. Hmm. Very cool. Um, now, I, I, instead of all, I'll get back to the X-Men in a second, but uh, Nathan had another question, which was, uh, where did the idea for Genus Vell come about? Um, Ron Mars, I thought created him for one of the Silver Surfer Unlimited issues. Um, they just, I, it probably, it wasn't even a time to, to – if you notice, every time Captain Marvel's trademark came up and Marvel had to renew the trademark, they had to publish a book that had the name Captain Marvel in it. So you'd always get a Captain Marvel something. It, it was Monica Rambeau for a while. She'd be in a one-shot, so the title would be out there, and that would automatically renew the, the, the trademark. Um, this wasn't the case. They wanted to create a son for, for Marvel, and they thought that would be interesting to have a character having to bear that burden being the son of the greatest warrior in the galaxy, the, the, the warrior who saved the universe and, and who lost his life, not as a warrior, but, you know, dying in a bed of a disease, you know? Um, and, and Ron initially initially developed him when he was doing uh, Silver Surfer stuff. If, uh, I think that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And then there was going and then Mark Grunewald wanted to do a monthly book with him, and I'm assuming that's when the trademark issue was coming up because they wanted to call it Captain Marvel. So in essence, Legacy was going to have to accept the name of Captain Marvel. And he asked me if I would write it, and I was just coming off the X books, and I wanted to change a pace, and I wanted to do something different, and I wanted to work with Mark because he was one of my best friends, and I really enjoyed working with him. I thought he was a great editor. Um, and I accepted the assignment, but the book didn't click. It didn't. It didn't. It just never gelled the way I would have wanted it to. Um, 
you know, and, and it didn't sell enough to, to give us the time we needed to, to make it work. Was it fun to use the character again in your Thunderbolts run? Not really, no, because it was it was almost kind of forced on us that we had to use him. It wasn't a character that Kurt and I originally wanted to bring into the book. Um, and, and there were a bunch of things happening editorially that, that seemed to keep getting postponed. They were going to do something else with the name Captain Marvel and give it to another character. Uh, so I, 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 I had to... I had to get rid of his name, which is why I gave him the different name and all this stuff. But then they en- ended up not doing that with the concept that they were talking about. And it was a while ago, so I don't even remember a lot of the details. I just know it was frustrating to have him in the book because I, I-, I didn't think he fit in the book, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a question about uh, a character fr- that you featured at one point in the Captain Marvel book and also in other of your X-Men run. Uh, how did Adam X get created? Um, Adam X was created by myself and Jeff Johnson, who we co-designed him, and he was created to be the third Summers brother, and, and that was the storyline I started with Mr. Sinister's you know little slip of the tongue in X-Men 22 or 21, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And the minute I did that slip of the tongue, Bob loved it, he loved the idea, and I said, I have a character idea in mind. It's a little bit of a Luke Skywalker story. Farm boy has to save the universe. And Bob said, interested? I'm, I'm liking what I hear. Let's let's percolate it. But as with many things, Bob, <laughs> there's a long road between <laughs> between getting it getting it liked and getting it done. Because the road between those two things are the details and and sometimes bob loses the details because he's bouncing around to 50 different things at once so i never although i had the details in my mind and i had the details written down i was never able to sell him on the details because he never gave it the the time of day so i i had no choice but to do it in sprinkles in the books themselves and and that was the worst way to do it because that gave them the out of being able to say that that's not the case. That's not who this character is. And that's exactly who the character was. And and I had a whole miniseries I wanted to do and I wanted Jeff Johnson to draw it. And Jeff even did a couple sample pages which looked really, really sweet. And the character did not look like that overly ridiculous version that tended to see print because everybody was trying to do Screaming Jim Lee um, art at the time. The, the, the character never came together the way I always wanted him to come together because he's one of those where trust me he was a much better character than had the opportunity to prove to you from what was in print um, but the storyline was all there I had the whole thing laid out it was a whole Shi'ar thing it was a really interesting concept on, on, on a character that has all this burden of responsibility and 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 is trying to discover who he is and in, in that discovery he realizes what he has to do and what he has to do is overthrow an empire you know and there, there was a lot there you know maybe someday maybe not um the design for the character with all the the, the blades etc um did, so you helped design the character as well or responsibility for that including the backwards cap um, I take full responsibility for that because he was trained as a warrior, he was trained as a ninja, and his powers activated if only if he could if he could cut you and have you have your blood exposed to the air. So 
logically he would need to have a lot of blades so that if he was fighting you, you'd automatically get cut. And we're not talking about Wolverine cutting. We're not talking about slicing and dicing limbs or anything like that. All he needed to do is scratch you. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the access way for his powers to operate. So the knives and the blades were all logical to the needs of the character's powers and to his past that I developed and, and, and broken down. But once again, you didn't get an opportunity to see enough of that to understand it, so it ended up looking a little a little excessive and hokey. Plus, different artists drew him different ways, and it ended up looking a little a little overly done and a little too much, depending on what artist was drawing him. But if you look at the original trading card that was done by him, it's the only chance Jeff Johnson got to draw him. You'd see a much leaner, thinner character, and, and he didn't look as excessive. And in the sample pages that Jeff did for the miniseries we wanted to do, he, 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 was, a, he was just a, a different-looking character. He did not look as testosterone you know? <laughs> and, and no backwards baseball cap? Yeah, he had a backwards baseball cap when he was on Earth. But you got to understand, this was 92. Everybody was wearing a backward baseball cap back then. <laughs> you know? I got Rob Liefeld's making fun of me for putting a backward baseball cap on, on Extreme, and he's wearing a backward baseball cap in the interview he's doing where he's making fun of me. <laughs> I'm using that as, a, as an example, but it's not, it's not accurate. But, but you, look, you look back on that time, and, and, and that's what people were wearing. That's what, that's what people in their early 20s were wearing. So if this, if this guy's supposed to be 19 or 20, and he's, he's on Earth, he's going to put on a backward baseball cap. It is what it is. But you know what I mean? You can't look at something within the context of today true you know today's fashion or today's prism and make fun of it when it was relatively accurate to the reality of the time in which it was created you know what i mean mm-hmm. you know Reed richard smoked a pipe in issue number one of fantastic four you make fun of him for smoking a pipe now because nobody smokes pipes you know what i mean Fair, good point i know it's a good point <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i know it is i know <laughs> Um, Fatal Attractions, what was the process of breaking out that storyline like? Because that was, I guess, part of the 30th anniversary, was it not? Yeah, I think it was. And we um, we knew it was going to be a much smaller crossover, and it was only going to be like five issues, but each, each issue was going to try to be self-contained. Um, we knew they were going to be oversized issues, and we knew we were going to have those really cool holograms on the cover. Um, we We just decided that magneto was going to up the game and get mad and we needed a reason for him to get mad and we needed him to be the villain but not be the antagonist which is he's the villain of the story but if you notice it's he's completely in a defensive posture the entire storyline everyone's coming to him everyone's going after him and he is in essence defending himself through excessive villainous ways you know what i mean so so we we wanted to have our cake and eat it too um and and i thought it turned it turned some good stories out i thought that there was a lot of interesting stuff though i mean when you think about the ramifications to the x universe of that storyline for years to come that's that's a sign of a pretty good story when you think about it you know (laughs) that what happened was important enough that it affected multiple characters for multiple years on multiple titles you know that's pretty good I'll, I'll take that. That's not bad, you know. Absolutely. No, as a kid, I always, I, I personally always really enjoyed X Men Twenty Five. I thought it was fantastic. Thank you. You should have seen the original script. 
You're saying it, it would it could have been better? Yeah, the original script was better. Yeah, yeah. Can, um, you, can you illuminate what got changed? Uh, multiple captions, especially in the third act, especially in the uh, from the point that the from the point that the X Men get to um, the 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 satellite, whatever the heck it was called, um, asteroid M. What was it, Avalon? Yeah, no, was it was it called Avalon back then? I don't even know. I can't remember uh, now. That that multiple captions got rewritten because those captions were most the omniscient narrator was mostly sympathetic to Magneto. And Interesting. The captions were changed to be less so, and I thought that was a mistake because I thought that in that particular story, for what was hap- going to happen to him he had to be the sympathetic character and the X-Men had to be the bad guys. Even though the X-Men aren't the bad guys, they had to be perceived of as the bad guys in that story. Um, and, and that's all. That's, that's, all, and that's all from memory. And my memory's terrible, but, but I'm pr- I remember that, that the last 10 to 15 pages had multiple caption rewrites that really frustrated me because it diminished, it diminished the sympathy you felt for what Magneto was going through. The other thing that always bothered me about that issue, which was no one's fault, it was just a reality of the, of the business, is that I, I always needed 10 more pages to tell that story. I knew I needed 10 more pages to tell that story. I asked for more pages to tell that story, but we couldn't do it because it was already a double-sized issue. There was no way Andy would have been able to draw it, and, and we couldn't accommodate it on the, the publishing budget, blah, blah, blah. But I knew that I needed more pages to tell that story, and I, and I never had them, and I wish I did um, actually, right after that, you had the, the Blood Ties crossover. So I guess you finally got to write some more of the Avengers. Yeah, a little bit. But you know what? We were so exhausted. We had Executioner's Song, and we had Fatal Attractions, and then we had Blood Ties all in a year. Wow. All in a year. Issue 14 to issue 16, or, what, or 26, whatever it was. It was exhausting. We were so mad about that Avengers crossover, and Bob was the writer on the Avengers, and he was so mad about that Avengers crossover. That was so forced on us and imposed on us by 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 higher up, DeFalco and higher, because of the pressure that was being put on us to generate revenue for the thief Ron Perlman um, <laughs> and his his pockets pockets full of cash. Um, that 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 blood tie story, I I you know what I couldn't tell you to this day what the heck it was about. I don't even remember it all. I really don't. I, I don't remember that issue almost at all. I remember Andy drawing Captain America because he drew a fantastic Captain America, but I don't remember the story. Wow, blocked it out of my mind. Um, wh- you kind of started, I guess, uh, the romance between Rogue and Gambit. How did that come about? No, you know what? Jim Jim Lee started that. They had that oh, whole issue with the her and her little Daisy Dukes and a little little polka dot blouse. Okay. Um, and and the, the the boysenberry pie getting slammed in his face and then blah or her face or whatever blah blah blah. They're the ones who started that. Uh, the readers, especially the female readers, really jumped on it. They really jumped on it. To tell you the truth, the readers, the readers were responsible for that relationship far more than we were because there they showed a distinct passion to see the that couple develop and 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 i 
I gave it to them because it was a clear indication from the letters we were getting from our convention appearances and our store appearances that this was something that the readership was very interested in. And it was a great thing for both characters, but it also was a bit of an anchor for both characters um, and, and became a long-term anchor for both of them too, I believe. Um, but, but at the time, it was pretty fun because the book wasn't getting a chance to do enough new relationships because so many of the relationships were so long established. Hmm. That's that's a good point, actually. I guess, and both characters are relatively new at that. Well, I say relatively, but yeah, yeah. no, they were relatively new in that regard. I mean, not new in terms chronologically. Rogue had been around a lot, but you know, relatively new in terms of her presence in the book. I mean, you know, she she came aboard like one seventy something, you know, and and we're looking we're looking at around issue 180 ish or so that's not that's not that no 280 ish or so it's not that long five six years is really not that long a period of time in a monthly publishing cycle for character character arcs to ebb and flow not true um unlike today yeah um, where everything has to be done in six issues and you can ignore whatever was done in the next six issues <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was it like creating the uh, the Age of Apocalypse with Scott? Um, really, really, really frustrating. Um, my, I, I knew my time on those books was starting to get close to an end. Um, I loved the initial idea for Age of Apocalypse, but because I was doing so much work, that was something Scott and Bob developed on their own without me, more so than they had in the past, more so than I would have preferred so too much of that was kind of handed to me and said this is what we want to do what do you think and by that point what i think is i guess i don't have much say in the matter because so much of it's been done already um so i loved the concept but i I wasn't enough of a part of the development of it um ironically i wasn't happy at all with the story i wasn't happy at the time readers loved it i i didn't we started a story that did not have an ending because they didn't know what they wanted to do for the ending and I remember the ending being a real bone of contention between all of us um, and and I was not involved in the final decisions for those for whatever that ending was going to be the X-Men Omega issue um, I just remember not liking it um, and, and it didn't matter because I was fired off of X-Force while Age of Apocalypse was going on and I quit X-Men just a few issues after Age of Apocalypse was over so you can pretty much tell from that where I stood with the books at that point. Um, but having said all that, I just reread pretty much the entire run in advance of writing the new Age of Apocalypse series for Marvel for Secret Wars. And given 20 years of time to not think about it and not look at it, I, I appreciated it a lot more now when I reread it than I did then. So I, un- I I still think that the story has tremendous holes in it, and there's a lot of things that didn't work. But I totally understand why it was as well received with readers as it was, and to this day is as well received in the hallways of Marvel as one of the best crossovers the company had ever done. Um, I understand it better now, although I still think it could have and should have been a better project. Mm-hmm. Uh, switching gears to Thunderbolts. Um, Kirby Usyk obviously had done a, a great job in that book, and then you kind of took it, and in a lot of ways, to um, a natural extension and evolution. I, I actually always thought that your take on the team was 
in some ways even better in terms of the narrative structure. What was it like taking on that task of succeeding in Curse? Well, you're talking about the guy who wrote the first X-Men issue and credited to write the first X-Men issue in 17 years after Chris Claremont had written the book for 17 years. So I figured taking him over after Kurt for three years wasn't as big a deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I found that Kurt's foundation was so strong. It was such a good book. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. I I, I thought that it, it started to lose its way a little bit as Kurt was ending his second year and entering his third year. And I think he might have felt that too, which is why he wanted to change a pace. When Tom asked me to do the book, I jumped at it. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was really just really ramp up the tension on these guys. I, I thought that they'd become a little safe or comfortable, and I didn't think the team should ever be safe or comfortable. Um, so, so, so that's what I tried to do right off the bat is ramp up the tension on them. But what, I, what I'm still proudest of to this day, taking over that book, is that for almost six months after I'd started writing it, we were still getting letters from readers who were addressing it to Kurt and Mark. <laughs> they, they thought Kurt was still writing the book because they didn't notice. And the, the writing was not was something that they didn't notice drastically change. And I actually take, I take pride in that because the, I found no reason as a writer to come in and throw the baby out with the bathwater. I saw no, no reason to change the dynamics of the characters. I saw no reason to change the personalities of the characters, et cetera, et cetera. I just wanted more things happening to them. That's all, you know? And mm -hmm. that's what I tried to do. Was and then from there, I built it and started developing storylines for my characters, my own ways. And if you notice, the first year, at least, of me writing that book, Kurt was credited, not because he was involved in the, the creation of the, of the monthly comic, but because so much of what was happening in the book was still a result of the plots and subplots he had begun, that I wanted him to be acknowledged for that. And then, and then a lot of the other stuff that started to happen after that, especially when Patrick Zerker took over, was really all stuff I wanted her to do with the characters and ways I wanted to go with them. I'm pretty proud of that run. I haven't reread it in a while, but I'm pretty proud of that run. I really liked working on that book. I loved working with Mark again, and I really, really liked working a lot with Patrick Zerker. I loved working with him, and I thought he did some really, really good work on that book too. Absolutely. And actually um... – I remember picking that up when it was coming out. I mean, I I was I guess just the right age. I mean, the the, the plot lines you were running, the the conspiracy angle that was leading up to issue fifty. Uh, I remember picking up issue fifty and just being like absolutely blown away by it. Like it was Thank just, you. It was just such a fun read. It just felt like a lot of you know it was a, a great payoff. I guess to everything that you've been doing since you kind of got on the book. And uh, everything that happened with Hawkeye in that issue, I just was always very impressed and didn't know how you were ever going to top that. I don't know if I ever did, but <laughs> <laughs> I still had a lot of fun doing things with the different characters over the long haul. I really did. I, I enjoyed that a lot. I really liked, I really liked developing characters like Songbird, and, and I, I, I loved the chance to do long-form storytelling with Zemo in a way that that character had never had a chance to be explored that way. Um, I was really disappointed when I heard later on that a lot of that stuff had been basically ignored when he reappeared in Captain America or the mainstream Marvel Universe titles. That, that really disappointed me because that was a lot of effort in, in character building, and I thought that it, it deserved the recognition of being continued, you know, not being ignored.
I agree with you completely. In fact, I remember reading that those issues of Cap and being disappointed because I had been such a huge fan of your portrayal of Zemo. In fact, I just I, I he became one of my favorite characters because of the nuance you brought to him um, throughout your T bolts run and back into New Thunderbolts as well. Uh, so it was a shame to see him kind of reduced. I, I I guess I just echo your sentiment there. Yeah, I appreciate that. I actually I didn't I read I read the 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 Cap run up through the Winter Soldier stuff and the return of the Bucky and all that. I didn't read the Zemo stuff. Um, by then I stopped reading the book and I only knew what was going on not from having read the book. So it's not fair because I haven't read it, so I can't I can't say for sure. But enough people contacted me via email or on message boards and things like that, not happy that that what what I'd done with Zemo wasn't being at least at least continued before you tear him down again you know what i mean yeah uh, that 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 i knew that that meant that the writer wasn't following suit you know and and who knows me the writer may not have read thunderbolt so he just wanted to approach zemo the way he wanted to approach zemo but there's a problem with that in that if you're working in a shared universe you at least have to be aware of what was done to 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 provide a rationale for why you're going to go from point a to point b you know Oh, for sure. Actually, I remember one of my, I guess, favorite things you did with Zemo was, uh, I guess, during this Civil War crossover when he um, went back and kind of gave Cap America back his uh, his Footlocker from uh, Under Siege. Yeah, I always thought that was a nice moment. Yeah, but he's a dick. He was just being manipulative. <laughs> well, yeah, but it was still cool. Like it was just he wasn't, he wasn't really being sincerely nice. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but what other, I guess, when you came back to Thunderbolts, so actually let me strike that for a second. When you, when the book became semi-monthly or was coming out bi-weekly or whatever the schedule was, was that something that you had kind of planned or did you just kind of adapt to it and how did that happen? Yeah, no, what I wanted, I wanted to create more work for myself. I wanted more work. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't writing enough, so I wanted more work. So I, I basically complicated the story enough that I was justified in trying to pitch a bi-weekly publishing format for a few months and in order to tell two stories at the same time. Um, and really, I was just experimenting. It wasn't anything malicious or anything like that. I just wanted to experiment with the idea of having enough characters that you split them up into two separate storylines and, and, and run it concurrently. I thought that the readership of the book was stable enough that it would follow that storyline through two books. Uh, I didn't know for sure how the art would hold up because I knew one artist couldn't draw both, um, but but I knew that the character flow would work because I knew that I had two strong teams. I had the Hawkeye team with Songbird, which was a strong group of characters, and I had the Zemo team on Counter-Earth, which was also a strong group of characters. I also had two very different stories I wanted to tell with both teams. So it made sense to me not to launch a new Thunderbolts book. I didn't need two Thunderbolts books. I just needed two books to tell to tell this run of stories. And and Marvel at the time looked at it from a publishing budget standpoint and said, okay, you'll make X dollars more if we do two issues a month of this book. Okay, we'll do it. Uh, you know, But it ended up biting me in the ass a little bit because I think it was perceived in the offices of, as being – as being me, as me being out of control of my own storyline, I made it so complicated that I needed two books to tell the story. And the answer to that is yes, that's true. I made it so complicated that I needed two two books to tell the story. 
but it was totally purposeful. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't that I lost control of the story. It's that I controlled it to the point where I wanted it to lead to that, you know? Um, so, so, you know, I, I haven't looked back at that work in quite a while. I, I may reread it soon. Um, but, but uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see how they hold up. I, I'm curious to see how that run holds up. How, um, I guess, how did you take it when your run on that book ended and the book got changed into something completely different? Like, how did I was fired a few times, wasn't I? I think I was fired at least twice from that book. Um, I was furious, um, because it was a great case of new editoritis. Uh, a, a new editor came aboard and promptly disrespected everything that had gone on with the book the entire creative team and quite frankly the entire audience of the book and that's the worst thing that a new editor can do i don't even remember the kid's name i really don't i i and and he he's not working in comics anymore as far as i know but it was it was one of the dumbest things an editor can do and it was totally unfair to his new creative team and it was totally unfair to the um the new take on the book because they never had a shot if it had been launched as an original title it could have sunk or swum on its own merits but by calling it thunderbolts and by making it what they made it they they totally sabotaged their own effort um so so i was i was really glad that it got canceled after six issues or whatever it was. I was really glad that the sales tanked. Not for the writers involved or the artists involved. I'm not, I'm not happy about that. But I was thrilled that, that what this editor did failed so spectacularly. What was it like to then get the chance to come back and kind of revive the book, first in the miniseries Avengers Thunderbolts and then in a new ongoing? I thought it was appropriate that a villain such as myself gets a chance at redemption. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was good. I got to work with Kurt. I got to work with Tom. We got to work with Barry Kitson. We got to write the Avengers and the Thunderbolts together. It was it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. The monthly book was a lot of fun too. Even though we were trying to do something different with it, the monthly book was a lot of fun. I, I, Tom Grumman is a great artist. I love working with him. He's a super storyteller. Um, and we got to we got to explore all different kinds of little kernels. Maybe he was getting a little tired. I mean, by the time that that, that I got fired again and Warren Ellis took over, um, although I respect Warren as a writer tremendously and I like what he did on Thunderbolts a lot, I still don't like it as Thunderbolts. And I think that his take on it ruined the true nature of the concept forevermore now because the majority of readers now think of the Thunderbolts as Warren Ellis' badass group of villains, and that's not what the Thunderbolts is supposed to be about. Um, mm. So I wish that Warren Ellis had done a book called Fight Bolts or something, you know? <laughs> I wish that Warren had done a different a different concept, because I, I don't think that his concept was Thunderbolts, uh, but I really, really respect what he did in terms of his storytelling. How did uh, you and Kurt choose the characters who were in New Thunderbolts? Because you had a bunch of new faces. Yeah, we just wanted to try some fresh blood. I think he picked a couple and I picked a couple. Um, I'd have to have the roster in front of me to even see who they were to know who did what. I know for sure he picked, um, what's her name, the the, the, the woman from Spider-Man. Joystick? Uh, yeah, I, I know for sure he picked Joystick because I never in a million years would have picked her. Um, did you like writing her? Yeah, yeah, only because... 
he gave me a great take on her as the ultimate competitor willing to do anything for competition and and i was able to play with that a bit you know see i guess the team also had blizzard i think that was me that was you and i guess radioactive man that was Kurt, for sure. I never, I, as I've said in plenty of interviews in the past, I never ever would have picked a character with a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> but you did some great um, work with him, thankfully. Janice, uh, Janice Vell was foisted on us editorially. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wanted Mach 1 and Songbird. I'm pretty sure Kurt wanted Atlas and Radioactive Man and Joystick. Um, that that was yeah. I'm pretty sure that that was the the breakdown. Who had the I guess the the idea or the concept to bring uh, Andreas Strucker as a swordsman? Me. Yeah, that was me. I wanted to do that. I wanted to do the whole thing with the the hilt being the dried skin of his sister's corpse. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I wanted to take a character that I thought was irredeemable and try to f- explore that concept through him. Um, and I, and I always loved what Steve Englehart did with the Swordsman and Avengers, so I wanted to try to do it with the same name again. You know, I, it never it never worked out as well as I wanted to. It didn't didn't come through as well as I would have hoped. But I don't regret having made the, the choice to try it. You know. No, of course. Um, now this is another question from the, the message boards. Uh, what was your favorite series to write between New Warriors and Thunderbolts? New Warriors, but only because it was I was younger and nobody expected anything out of the book, and we succeeded beyond anyone's expectations, and it was really highly regarded within the company because of what we did, and I, and Mark and I were both making our bones on it, and and we got to take something from the ground floor and build it up. I mean, Thunderbolts is Kurt's genius. It was Kurt. It's a great idea. That first issue will never be duplicated again in comics ever. And and it was it was that first issue was something phenomenal. So I was basically trying to build off of the excellence that he had started. You know, that first year of that book I thought was great. Um, so Thunderbolts was a great writing experience for me, but it's never going to have the emotional resonance that that New Warriors has. Um, j- just like. I loved working on X-Force with Greg Capullo. I love that run he and I had. I wish he would have stayed on a, at least a year longer. I thought we would have made some great comics together. But that'll never have the emotional resonance for me that Cable Deadpool has because I created Deadpool. You know, it's the character that came out of my brain and my heart, you know, and my insanity. So so it's always going to have more of an emotional touchstone to me. Okay. Um, along those lines, um, uh, someone in Boggins is asking, did you continue to read books like Thunderbolts and New Warriors after you left? Any favorites of them that you read and wish that you'd thought of? The answer is no. No? I, I have never read a book that I've quit or been fired from for years afterwards, ever. Um, Evan Skolnick took over writing New Warriors and Evan Skolnick had been my assistant editor and he was a very good friend of mine he is a very good friend of mine he waited over 10 years for me to read his run of New Warriors before I finally did 
and told him, Ev, this was some really good stuff here. I really liked what you did with this, this, and this. That was kind of cool. <laughs> um, and I didn't read it because uh, it, it, it's too much of an emotional, you know, an emotional thing for me. Um, I did never read, I never read Alpha Flight for a, a couple of years. The only issue of Alpha Flight I read after I quit was the the issue where North Star came out because I had fully intended to have North Star come out, and and I quit the book before I did that, and then to see how Scott handled it just appalled me it just it just i hated it so much because it was the 180 degree opposite of what i would have done with the coming out of north star back then um so i didn't read i only read that one issue i didn't read anything else that he did with tom morgan or anything like that i have yet to read a single issue of daniel way's deadpool um and i don't think i ever will Unless I get, unless I have a monthly Deadpool assignment that I got to contend with, and then I want to read what's been done. I have read the recent run of Deadpool because the editor sent me PDFs of like the first thirty issues because I may be working on a Deadpool-related project right now, so I needed to get an idea of the voice and the tone that they were employing for the new series. So I did read those issues of Deadpool, but it's the only Deadpool I've read since since I, I, I got fired. Well, basically since Cable Deadpool got canceled. Okay. Um, a question now, obviously a lot of your career you worked with Marvel, but you do have a lot of DC work as well. Um, now, what was it like working, I guess, doing some of the backups for Trinity? It was fun. It was, that was a fun year, actually. I know I, I, I don't think the story ever really came together the way the way either one of us would have liked, but it was a really great challenge. It was a really fun. It was really fun to have to sweat again. It was really fun to have to work that hard again. Um, I liked that a lot, and 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 I liked the chance to get to work with so many different characters in the sandbox. You know. Um, so I liked writing the backups because I was getting to write so many different characters. Um, you know, so I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was a good year. One thing I really enjoyed of yours was, uh, your, uh, Batman confidential arc, uh, the cat and oh, the bat. Cat, thank you. That was, that was, that was actually a lot of fun to do. Anytime I work with Kevin, it's always an entertaining experience. Um, I'll, pl- he and I will try to co-plot something. We'll fight about it incessantly. I'll plot it. He'll ignore it. He'll draw whatever he wants to draw. I'll love it. I'll script it. It'll, away we go. <laughs> um, how, how did that even come about? He's been one of my best friends since 1985. So, oh, wow. so we have we have a unique working relationship. <laughs> For sure. How did that uh, that story come about, or that that project? Andy Helfer wanted Kevin to do something, and me and Kevin wanted to do something together. And Andy said, "Fine." And Rangers just won two to one, just so you know. Um, and I, uh, I, I wanted to do something with Batgirl and Catwoman, and we just and because they were doing early stories of Batman, we went back to try to kind of do their first meeting. I, I couldn't remember anything in continuity that specifically recalled the first meeting between Batgirl and Catwoman, and we both thought that would be something fun to do. Kevin wanted to draw women because he hadn't been getting a chance to draw enough women, so we thought drawing Batgirl and Catwoman would be kind of fun. Um, and, and and you'd think that the one scene in that entire story would be the one that the artist wanted to draw the most, and that was the the, the discreetly covered up naked scene at the Hedonist Club. But that was a, a, a scene I wanted to do very badly as the writer of the book and he 
absolutely hated it and didn't want to do it and thought it was 100% wrong and I thought it was 100% right and I ended up winning that fight and we ended up doing the scene which I think is a great scene to this day um, but he still wishes that he, didn't, he hadn't had to draw that because he didn't agree with having Batgirl take her costume off and get into the hedonist club naked <laughs> it's, an it's definitely an interesting concept right? well I wanted to show the lengths that both characters would go to to get their jobs done, you know? And and here's this young Batgirl thinking, she thinks I'm not going to do that. Well, screw you, I'm going to do it. And here's Catwoman thinking, this little prissy nerd isn't going to do this. And then the prissy little nerd goes ahead and does it. So to me, it fit both characters to a T for, for, you know, what needed to be done. And I purposely wanted the most ridiculously gratuitous cheesecake that I could possibly get within the context of an incredibly clever scene that that, that allowed the artist to have a lot of fun, you know? <laughs> and it, it, it's typical of Kevin that the scene that he should have had the most fun drawing, he had the, the he, he hated drawing the most, and he still did a fabulous job doing it. <laughs> um, moving ahead, um, you took over Red Robin um, until it was, I guess, ended by the new fifty two. What was what was how did I took you over? I got. Um, I am. I hopefully will have a chance to write a Robin or Red Robin series again, because I can become the only person in history to have three Robin series canceled. Um, I <laughs> took over Robin and knowing that it was going to end with one eighty three, and right. he was going to become Red Robin. So I took over Robin with issue one eighty one from Chuck, Chuck Dixon, who had come back on the book and had problems editorially apparently, and they asked me to write Robin. So I wrote it until the uh, from one seventy five until one eighty three, which was the end of the Robin run, mm -hmm. and then Chris Yost wrote Red Robin for the first year. And then I got the book at 13, and it was canceled at 25 because of New 52. It was never canceled because of sales. Its sales were always really strong. It was canceled because major things were happening editorially that were going to affect the character. Um, I would gladly write Tim Drake again tomorrow, but only if I knew he was going to not be canceled for, for at least two or three years. That's all. <laughs> just give me 24 to 36 issues not 12 and I'll gladly write him again um, I, I love the Tim Drake character Dick Grayson is my favorite character in comics and has been since I was like 6 years old even though he was DC and I was a Marvel kid growing up I still followed a bunch of Robin stuff and then I got the, George, the, the Marvin George Teen Titans series and Robin was always my favorite character I love the Nightwing book that Chuck Dixon did I thought he did a great job and, and and getting to write two issues of Nightwing with Dick Grayson and it was one of the, the highlights of my superhero comic book writing career. Um, all that being said, I loved what when they created Tim Drake. I loved what they did with Tim Drake. I loved Chuck Dixon's hundred plus issue run on Tim Drake. Um, and and the chance to get to write that character was a pleasure. And, and I I'm I have not read any of the new Fifty Two DC books in a couple of years. I read the first year roughly of all of the different titles but but i haven't read it since then so what's going on with tim drake in the new 52 nor do i care i i just know that if if i get the chance to write that character i will always do it because i like the character tremendously how did you approach the character differently when you were writing that brief run on robin as opposed to when he became red robin like did you did you feel like you 
you wrote them differently, or did it, you just? There were very different circumstances. I mean, and the, the the first run on Robin was difficult because it was going to be done at a time when Batman was going to be presumed dead, combined with the fact that I knew that the the title was going to be ending and he was going to be quote unquote graduating to become Red Robin. So everything I had to do with the story had to be structured around the context of those things. He had to be assuming responsibility for protecting Gotham because he thought Batman was dead. He had to be preparing himself for a maturation and growth into something new because he had to he had to outgrow Robin. So it, it, the writing was specific to the needs of what was happening in the universe. It's not like I got to. 70 through 96, you know what I mean? Where you were just telling stories of Red Robin, uh, or of Robin, I should say. Um, the second time I got to write him, I got to write him far more cleanly as Tim Drake in the monthly adventures of Red Robin because I had no preconceived notions that the book was going to be canceled with issue 25 because I knew nothing, of, no, none of us knew that New 52 was going to happen. So I'm writing Red Robin as if I'm going to be writing this book for another 50 to 60 issues. I really was. If you read that year run I did, I was actually setting storylines up that were going to take years to play through. And I was bringing in a whole bunch of characters that, I, that I'd wanted to develop to improve and enhance and increase his rogues gallery. And all of this stuff was going to be intertwining storylines that were going to take years and years because I fully planned to write that book for as long as Chuck Dixon wrote Robin. Um, so you approach it in a completely different standpoint as a result of that. When I, I found out about the New 52, it was like, a, it was like getting hit by a 2 by 4 I had no idea it was coming. So it, it, was, it was infuriating and frustrating because... I, I would have been quite happy writing that book for five, six, seven years, you know? This actually leads kind of into a question from the boards, which was, uh, given that you've done work for for DC both pre-New 52 and during the New 52, was your approach any different between, between the two eras? Sorry, between the two eras? Were there... uh, I wasn't around New 52 long enough to be able to answer that question. I quit Legion Lost uh, after six issues, and that might tell you all you need to know about... <laughs> My, 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 my standpoint on you 52 it, uh, it took me over three years to quit X-Men it took me about three minutes to quit Legion Lost uh, actually that kind of feeds into the last part of the question that he had which was were there any editorial mandates which might have changed how you would otherwise have written your books um no <laughs> <laughs> No, there were no editorial mandates that would have changed how I wrote the books. There was little editorial decision-making that w could have helped how I wrote the books. So there. <laughs> what uh, what led you to Legion Lost in the first place, as opposed to uh, any of the other books? They offered it to me, and I really wanted to say no because because I didn't trust that this was going to go smoothly but they they all they had to do is give me the roster of characters they had in mind and they basically plucked some of my favorite dave cockrum designed and mike grell designed legionnaires so i had no choice but to say yes i really did i i almost, i felt like you got to be kidding me you're you're giving me all of these books that make me feel like i'm 12 years old again reading Dave Cochran's Legion of Superheroes and how am I going to say no to that you know so I said I would do it even though I was incredibly nervous about it justifiably so and rightfully so as it turns out 
I did it because I, I did it because of the characters. I did it because I love the characters. Now, obviously, you have some books coming out this month and next month from Convergence. Yes, I have uh, three different series that are coming out right now uh, for Convergence. Uh, t- uh, Titans, uh, which focuses on Roy Harper mostly during Flashpoint era, and uh, Superboy, which uh, goes back to Connell during the uh, the post uh, the uh, what's what time period zero hour time period, mm-hmm. really roughly in the very beginnings of Superboy's book. Uh, that Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet had done, and I'm doing two issues of Justice League of America featuring the Detroit Justice League characters, and that's uh, pre pre Crisis on Infinite Earths time period. Um, and and I had a lot of fun. It was a fun it was a fun thing to work on because it was really nice and tightly self contained. Your individual series were not being overtly impacted by by the details of some big crossover you you had really simple basic parameters two groups have to fight each other each are trying to save their own cities and that makes it easy and it gives you really fun complicated conflict as well um and all we had to do is once they they offered me titans first and then i basically i basically earned my way into the other titles by knowing so much characters and their time frames and their histories and what was going on at that point that the Dio, the Dan DiDio said okay you can do this one and that one too <laughs> because I basically <laughs> earned my way to it just from my knowledge of the of the original source material um, and and and, um, and I really enjoyed it because it, it was a chance to do very straightforward two-part stories that that give you an opportunity to dig into your characters a little bit in an incredibly heightened conflicted situation that they're in you know so and and i i've yet to read a single script from the actual convergence convergence main storyline i have no idea what's going on in that main storyline i really don't oh really my plot since so long ago that the the series hadn't even been scripted yet i just we understood what the parameters were that that we were working under so uh, you know i i i feel very divorced from this as being a part of a crossover because i just I just saw it as three individual two-part stories that I was telling. Which of the three was your favorite to write? Um, well, that's a tough one. Um, it, it varies because I did I did it this time around. I did it plot first, which was the old Marvel style method as opposed to full script. Um, so I plotted all all six issues in like a month and a half back back in July of last year, and I enjoyed all all of my plots a lot. Then it changes once you start getting artwork, and the artwork really influences how you start to feel about it based on how you script it and everything else. And, and I think there's there's pluses and minuses to each of the three series for a variety of reasons. There's things about each that I like a lot, and there's a few things about each that, that I wish could have been tweaked a little bit. Um, so it's hard for me to pick. It's hard for me to pick one one or the other. That's up to you guys to decide when you're reading it. Um, the Titans stuff was relatively well received last week, review wise. But so many people were so down on Roy Harper because of Flashpoint and what happened to him that they're having a hard time giving it a fair shot in that regard. Um, the Superboy issue that just came out yesterday has gotten really strong reviews so far um, because people feel like it. People have said that it feels like the original series. You know, and that's that's a plus too. Um, I would agree with that assessment, to be honest. Okay, and I'm really 
curious about what people are going to think about next week's Justice League um, because Chris Cross's artwork does not look like the artwork of that time from the original series. Um, it, it's really detailed and, and, and art with a lot of depth and a lot of color depth. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I guess that one's probably my favorite because I got to write Ralph and Sue Dibney together. And that was a pleasure to get to do. You know, it's a pleasure to get to write these characters and have them be alive again. Um, so, so, so in that regard, I guess through this through this long-winded answer, I, I came up with an answer to your other question. <laughs> I guess I like Justice League Detroit the best because I got to write Ralph and Sue together. Well, and it sounds like the reason for that being one of your favorites to write was kind of what readers are more most interested in with these series is that we get to see these characters. In a, from a certain time period, written kind of like they're from that time period, uh, maybe not illustrated that way, but at least feeling like like they just picked them up from a comic from you know thirty years ago or twenty years ago, whatever the case might be. I I can't answer to all the series because I haven't seen any of the others. Um, I've only seen my own in terms of the copies that the DC sending me, so I can't answer how the other writers are doing their work. But they hired a lot of people that that are experienced veteran writers and that that that's tossed around as a slur half the time but if there's one thing we know how to do is accommodate the needs of the story to the desires of the audience and the the dictates of the publisher we understand how to navigate those minefields so i'd be surprised if you got these writers giving you drastically different takes on the characters because they understand that the reason why this is being done and the reason why many readers are going to want to get it is because they want to feel a little bit of a warm marshmallow toasty glow of nostalgia you know that doesn't mean it has to be an old story but it you wanted to feel like the characters you read when when you originally read them during those time periods and I guess along that line with with Marvel's Secret Wars, it's kind of like going home in a way with Age of Apocalypse, right? Yeah, but very different. That's actually an interesting comparison because the parameters of Battleworld make it such that this is its own original story. It's just it, it's Age of Apocalypse, but it's not that Age of Apocalypse. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's so so. I'm able to have a different history to it. I'm able to have a different character dynamics to it. Um, the, the 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 structure of the status quo is different than it was in Age of Apocalypse. The needs are very different in the story. I'm telling a five-issue limited series, and the original Age of Apocalypse was how many issues? 40-something issues? Something you know? like that, yeah. So, so I'm telling a really tightly controlled and contained and defined story with a beginning, middle, and end, and the ticking time bomb into the characters. And... and the other one was a sprawling, huge canvas, you know, and this and, and this current one isn't. So the needs of the stories are very, very different. The amount of characters that I'm able to focus on in, a, in, a, in the five issue miniseries is a fraction of the amount of characters that were bouncing around 
in that original Age of Apocalypse storyline. You know, so I, I didn't look at them as the same thing. I didn't look. I haven't approached them the same way. I, I've really just used the original template to fuel my characters' status quos and decision making. And, and Gerardo's using them as, as a foundation for the visual look, but this story is honestly completely unto itself its own thing, you know? These characters are in a different place than those other ones were, and there's different they have different needs and different story requirements than they did in the original series. Now, how did you get involved in, in writing this new series? Mike Martz, who's been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and who I hired to work at Acclaim as an editor, um, comics way back in 97, um, called me up and said, or actually told me, he saw me at a convention in New York in October, and he said, we're percolating something I may want you to be a part of. And I said, you you, you call, I, I, I'll answer, because, if, you know, when Mike, Mike also hired me to do all the Robin and Batman stuff at DC as well. Mm. Um, I, I trust him implicitly and i respect him tremendously as an editor um so so when he asks me to do something i greatly appreciate it uh, because it means i'm going to be involved in something fun because he tends to do pretty pretty cool big stuff as an editor um he told me that something was percolating and then two months later he says we're still percolating but i got the green light i can use you i said okay because that's always iffy with me at my age with my <laughs> with my elder status it gets a little more complicated sometimes um but but i got the he got the green light to use me we're just not ready yet because this stuff had to be developed and then i started hearing about secret wars and i started to realize maybe it's something involved in that that mike is talking about so then you know a few months ago mike called me up and said okay now i can tell you this is what it is and this is what i want you to do and i said all right let's go that's it and, and that was it simple as that now, did you pick Sandoval, or was he no, picked no, by Mike, Mike, Mike picked him, and Mike showed it to me. And I wasn't familiar with his work, but I, I looked I looked up a lot of it, and then I saw all the samples he was doing, and, and I thought it was really cool. It's a, it's a really testosterone-y, big, overblown art style. It may not work on everything, but I think it works on this, because this is a pretty big, rugged, testosterone story. Um this story, this particular story, doesn't have a lot of room for sentiment or subtlety. Um, it, it, so it, it's a pretty, pretty fast-moving train that that you're on when you're reading this storyline. Um, and, and I think, I think his artwork is really going to work well for that. Um, you know, he's working, he's finishing issue one now, working on issue two. So, so I don't have enough of a sense of it as a as a larger piece of work. But in the first issue alone, there's a lot of muscle here. There's a lot of power behind his artwork and designs. Well, it definitely sounds like an exciting uh, thing to look forward to. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope people like, like it. I, I've gotten a tremendous amount of positive feedback um, from a lot of readers who, who are saying how, how much they're looking forward to this, how interested and curious they are about it. Um, and I've also gotten a lot of feedback from people at the Marvel offices where they're telling me they're really interested in this. And, and basically, if you're in your 30s now, you were 12 when that came out, you know? Or, and if you're in your 40s, you were 20 when that came out. So no matter what age you are, you if, if you were around back then or if you've read it after the fact because it's been such an enduring storyline, 
there's a curiosity about one of the original writers coming back to do it and to see what he's going to do. You know, I get that, and I appreciate that because if it sells, that's good for me, and it's it's good for everybody. So, so <laughs> I'm hoping that it's well received, and I'm hoping that it sells really, really well, so that I get more work. Absolutely. Uh, we'll we'll wrap up in just a moment because you've been extremely generous with your time. We're almost at two hours, uh, so I really appreciate that. Um, it's been the two hours of me babbling. It's, it's how many people are going to listen to this podcast it's two hours long what are you crazy they're going to love every minute of it you're going to have to break it down into bite sized three hour chunks well we'll see that's how they can uh, structure it as they listen to it on their commutes the Fabian Yusesa podcast day six (laughs) (laughs) hey I'd listen to that the sea was the sea was stormy that day my friends (laughs) Um, as I guess a final question, we, we've kind of touched on the different artists and collaborators you've worked with throughout your career, but we haven't spent a lot of time kind of talking about them. Um, who do you think were some of, I guess, your favorite collaborators in terms of bringing the vision you had in your mind to the page? I hate them all. None of them. None of them were ever good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's been two hours. I'm getting punchy. Um, you know what? I don't want to – I always have a hard time answering this because it, I'll either forget someone or I'll slight someone and I don't want to do that. But nor do I want to list the hundreds and hundreds of artists I've worked with in the past. Um, it, it's really, really tough. It, it's really been more a matter of does the artist um, – the artist and I clicking – on that particular title, that particular run, you know? And and to that effect, uh, Mark Bagley and I on New Warriors, Greg Capullo and I on, on X-Force, um, uh, Steve Scross and I on Gambit, uh, Patrick Zerker and I on Cable Deadpool, Mark Bagley and I again on Thunderbolts, and Patrick Zerker and I on Thunderbolts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- those were all opportunities to really click, but there were some others that are a little less... Less so. Um, I worked with Raphael Kayan and on Turok, and I, I loved working with him on that book. I thought his style and design sensibility was so perfect for that comic, and he also was able to handle the character stuff and the emotion that I was trying to impart on that book. And although a lot of people didn't read that book, I loved the work we did on it. I, I thought we did some really good stuff on that on that run. Um, I, you know. Getting, getting to work for a few issues with Ron Lim on Cyforce was great because we were both new and, and raw and hungry as hell, and the, I think the enthusiasm showed on the page, you know? Um, getting to work with Kevin McGuire is always a pleasure, but we've never had a project where, where it all went right. You know, Captain America fell apart, The Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel Liberty, which should have been and could have been our crowning achievement as comic creators, <laughs> never never came through. Um, the created equal thing we did at DC was a mishmash of too many people putting their fingers in the pie, so it never came out right. The X-Men Forever thing we did was completely screwed up because of me, all my fault, not his. Um, the what, do you, Bat- what do you mean? Batman, the Batgirl and Catwoman thing we did was... A tremendous amount of fun, but I don't think a lot of people were even aware of its existence, you know? So a lot of people didn't see it. Um, So so we've never had that chance to really work together on something that that could be a whole and stand the test of time. Um, You know, so different artists, different reasons 
Um, I loved working with Freddie Williams on Robin. I, I really did. I loved working with Marcus Toe on Red Robin. You know, so I'm not trying to name everybody. I'm just trying to explain that it the simpatico feel of that 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 kind of symbiosis with an artist can happen sometimes on on a specific run of a specific title it's hard to maintain it and keep it for an extended period of time you know but there's artists whose work i love where like kevin's and 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 none of the projects of the many we did ever completely clicked you know um, so, so uh, but that doesn't mean I don't think he's a fantastic artist. Um, so, so it, it varies, you know. No, for sure. Um, actually, one thing I, I completely forgot about to even mentioned it: uh, X Men Forever. What was that process like? That process was a nightmare, and it's all my fault. Um, Mark Powers wanted to do a continuity, a continuity, a story that really delved into continuity and, and tried to fix a bunch of things or correct a bunch of things or improve on a bunch of things um i wanted to do that too because i'm an idiot and kevin wanted to draw the x-men but he didn't want to have to draw every character in the x-men universe so what did i do i gave him a story with every character in the x-men universe um (laughs) I also did the layouts for almost that entire series, uh, real rough eight and a half by eleven breakdowns, in order to try to speed up Kevin's process. So while he was able to maintain a faster production schedule, it wasn't wholly his art, so he wasn't wholly vested in it. You know, um, so so the the whole thing ended up being much much more of a clusterfuck than it should have been. And feel free to bleep the word cluster. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that's a great spot for us to end, I guess. How could you end on that? How could you pick, like, one of the most frustrating, crappy series I ever did? I picked a good joke to, to end on. Just go back and talk about NFL Super Pro again. <laughs> yes. That's, you know what? If I'd found a way to put NFL Super Pro into X-Men Forever, that would have been the real capper to the career. That would have made it better? Yeah, I, well, no, it wouldn't have made it better, but it would have made it a hell of a lot more fun. <laughs> Oh, actually, I have a I have a question we can end on. Then it's a little bit better for you. What uh, what Marvel villain would you have loved to use in Thunderbolts that you didn't, or but think would be a, a cool Thunderbolt? And using Thunderbolt to mean what it used to mean when you were writing it. Oh, uh, so a character that would have become a member of the Thunderbolts. Yeah, that you would have loved to have made into a Thunderbolt. Um, that's a really really good question. That's a really good question. I never thought of that. I got to be honest, off the top of my head, my first, the very first two thoughts that came to my mind would be Dr. Octopus or Mysterio. Interesting. Um, But that being said, I don't quite know how I would make Dr. Octopus work as someone other than Dr. Octopus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What would he be? Tentacle man? (laughs) <laughs> the human squid. What would he? I mean, his his octopus arms are kind of telltale signs, aren't they? A little I mean, bit. It's hard to disguise those, isn't it? You you color them blue, and people are going to be tricked by that. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I guess Mysterio is so, the opposite end. He's easy to confuse. Yes, exactly. And yet, I'd be an idiot because. In order to disguise Mysterio, he'd have to not look like Mysterio. And the best thing about Mysterio is, is that fantastic Steve Ditko design. So I'd be getting rid of the best thing about the character, which is the way he looks. 
And then I'd ask if I could just please keep the dome and the cape on, and and like every everybody would go, "Hey, aren't you Mysterio?" No, no, I'm not. I just like that look. <laughs> I just I thought the dome look was really cool, so I stole it. <laughs> but I'm not really Mysterio. <laughs> That's funny. Well, thank you so much for uh, for spending the last two hours with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Adam. Thanks a lot, and, and tell all your listeners and, and everyone who you got questions from on the uh, the Marvel Masterworks board. Um, a, thanks for great questions because there were some really fun, different, and interesting questions in there that 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 I enjoyed having to answer. And B, I'm a Marvel Masterworks fanatic, and I'm sitting here answering all these questions as I have an Avengers volume sitting on my night table that I'm reading a little at a time every night. So tonight I get to read uh, Avengers 129 out of my Marvel Masterworks edition. Okay, so... Very nice. (laughs) There you go. All right. right. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a good night. Thank you very much, and and anytime, it's a pleasure. I'll do it again. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.